Welcome to the Magnus and Marcus podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, the head cross-country coach at the University of Houston and the author of The Science of Running. I'm joined by John Marcus, my buddy, who is coach of the High Performance West Group and probably known as an all-around kind of philosopher of running and life. So how are you doing, John? Doing great. Ready to give the people what they want. Well, awesome. Well, today I think we have a interesting topic, hopefully. So it was inspired by a podcast by uh, our good friend uh, Vern Gambetta and Gary Winkler, the well-respected sprints and hurdles coach. Um, and in it, they talked a, a little bit about various things from mechanics to strength training to uh, to uh, applying those to periodization to applying those concepts a little bit in the world of distance running. So, John, do you want to start with giving us maybe a little overview, and then we'll hop right into a couple of our opinions? Yeah, I mean, it was by far a phenomenal podcast. I mean, if you haven't listened to it, go over to the Hammer Media, Hammer Media website, check it out. The Gamecast, I believe, episode nine. Well worth the thirty thirty five minute investment to listen. Gary is a master coach who's been coaching a lot of you know a lot of world and national class athletes for a long 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 time and the great thing about him is he's a teacher coach and he's evolved by asking questions of himself and changing as he's going with over 35 40 years experience it's very rare to see someone continue to evolve so by all means check it out you know listening to it though i'm always thinking and asking questions and i took issue with you know some of the uh, ideas he did have and uh, how they transfer over to distance running. Um, you know, specifically, they were talking about uh, mechanics and not so much posture in terms of like, hey, run tall, hips out, you know, from kind of the hips up, but more about ground contact, how the foot's contacting with the ground, which is very popular in sprint mechanics. You know, that force application with that foot hitting the ground has that direct transfer to then with the next foot strike and so on and so forth, it's going to be able to do. And you want that to be, have a nice stiff ankle and all this type of stuff. So you get as much, you know, um, bounce back from the track as you do that you force into it. But they, you know, went on to say the distance runners could easily get a lot better by improving their mechanics. And I think it's a little bit of a misnomer or misunderstanding that, you know, what's good for sprinters is good for distance runners. You know, it, it's kind of a yes and no. And I think Steve and I, you know, we're talking offline here, and that's what we want to address is how important are mechanics to distance running? How do you improve that? And two, how do you still get the most bang out of your buck when you're at the most critical stage in a workout and or a race when you're fatigued as a distance runner and still have to be competitive? So I think that's the, the path we're going to trot down today. And see what tangents come our way as always probably a lot of tangents yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah to me this is an interesting and tricky subject because um as many of you know like one of my big mentors is tom Telez, a sprint coach so although i grew up as a distance runner i feel like i have this this um this need longing to satisfy the uh the sprint world too because so much of the biomechanics and sprint uh, training culture was kind of ingrained in me. Um, 
But I think, I think, you know, when you come to this topic of how important mechanics are to a distance runner, you come at it from one of two ways almost. It's like if you're the distance coach who's a traditional distance coach, like you've never emphasized mechanics, right? You just, you just kind of shrug it off and are like, oh, like this is how they run. They'll figure it out. If you're a sprint coach, on the other hand, you're in, Stepping back a little bit, as a distance coach, your training philosophy is almost all physiologically based, right? We're trying to improve these physiological systems, and that's like front and center in your mind of how to create training. And the and in the sprint world, it's opposite. Is well, the physiological stuff matters to degree. The overarching model that gets supplied is a biomechanical model, so it's this race patterning mechanical model that we're trying to create in a runner. So when these two worlds combine to look at mechanics for distance running, I think one of the major problems is you have people coming at it from two diametrically kind of opposed models, right? One, the mechanically based model, people think like, why in the world aren't you paying attention and emphasizing all these sprint mechanic type stuff and the physiological model says like yeah yeah that's great but like i need this physiological reaction of the workout and that's what i emphasis over anything else so i think part of the part of the issue is is that like they come at it from two different lenses and i think in order to make sense of it all like we have to acknowledge that bias that we both have step back and figure out like where its rightful place is, which is probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I think the mean path is always the best because um, you can get hypersensitive and say only one thing matters, or this is the paramount thing that matters. And I think that misses the point. You know, any good training plan is a holistic training plan, and the body of work, as I've always said, far outweighs any minute. Um, you know, hyper-specialized thing. I was talking to an athlete this morning, actually, on the run. And I said, look, what has the biggest impact, do you think, on your health and well-being and your training? And I gave him, you know, three things. Sleep, uh, volume of training, and quality volume of training. So if you look at sleep, right, we sleep 8 to 10 hours a day. If you look at volume of training, most distance runners run one to three hours a day, give or take, um, the day and the, the objection uh, target of the day. And then three is, okay, quality of volume can be five minutes, handful of strides, or it can be maybe up to an hour, maybe an hour and a half at most if you're like a marathoner of actually doing quality movement work, whether that's plyos, um, you know, threshold miles, uh, VO2 type repeats, you know, uh, 400s, weight room, whatever, where you're actually physically doing very, very high quality movements. When you extrapolate out even to from the micro to the macro and the macro is only a month, the average is then you spend 10 to 11 full days of a 30-day month sleeping, 10 to 11 full days. Then your volume ends up, your training, overall training volume ends up being in the range of one and a half to three and a half full 24-hour days. And then your volume of quality ends up being from 17 hours to 20 hours in a 30-day span. So you don't even get one full day of quality work done in 30 days. 
you know, and that's even being one, on more than one aggressive training plans, mm-hmm. right? So think about what has the biggest impact. Well, you can't say that one thing has, you know, sleep has the biggest impact because you do it the most or training volume has a big impact because from a exercise standpoint, you do that the most. I told them it's like, it's like baking a cookie. There's certain basic ingredients you need, you know, flowers, eggs, sugar, butter, what have you. But yet the chocolate chip is what makes the chocolate chip cookie a chocolate chip. But you need the dough. It doesn't matter if your dough – if you have the best chocolate chip that's sea salted, imported, organic. Oh my god, it's such a good chocolate chip. But you have, have – you craft for dough. It doesn't matter. You don't even have a cookie. You know, you only got a handful of chocolate chips. And that's what we end up, you know um, – getting obsessed over is the chocolate chips versus you got to first have the ingredients and make the dough before the chocolate chips come into place. And here it's the quality is the chocolate chips and the dough is the body of work. So, you know, that's, that's really the question of what we're trying to do as coaches and as distance runners and to improve us to be prepared for the race. I think, you know, Vern and Gary said it really, really best. Training is meant to enhance competitive performance. That's it. That's all training is designed to do. If what you're doing does not enhance your competitive performance, so what? If it enhances your ability to, hey, we're going to just run the same workouts every you know, two weeks, and I just want to see you get faster in the workouts because that means you're going to get faster in the race. Yes, you're going to run a faster race, maybe in a perfect time trial environment, but do you – Make it to the championship meet. Do you are you competitive at your championship level? And I think that's where we we fall short is we think it's this linear output equation where it's X Y Z amount of intervals or repetitions done progressively faster equals faster at you know this championship race automatically. And that I think is where I take issue with the idea that okay, well if we enhance mechanics, you automatically create a better and more efficient distance runner who without any other manipulation to their training protocol or training plan can all of a sudden now get exponentially faster because their mechanics are just more efficient. And it's true at a certain point, the only way you can get better at a high, high level is improved efficiency. But for the majority, 99.9% of coaches and distance runners at the scholastic level, you still got to work on the bare basics that have the biggest bang for your buck because that's what we're always fighting is what has the biggest application to enhance training or to enhance performance, you know, that we can do in training given people's capacity and time even to do this. And I think that's where, you know, we have to look at where you spend your time and how you spend the time and what you prioritize your time on in training and when. And I think mechanic work does have an important application, but when and where is key. And I think, you know, Steve, maybe if you want to jump in and talk about when and where you apply these things and how that looks, you know, and then I can kind of come in and um, supplement or complement what, what you do. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. No, I think that's a good, that's a good point. I mean, it's, it's unfortunately as a distance runner, there's a finite limit amount of time that you can have and a, more so a finite amount of emotional and mental and physical energy that you can put into things. So it's all about figuring out where that lies. And, you know, to me, it's always been about figuring out with each athlete where our biggest bang for the buck is and where is the things that will help keep this athlete continually progressing in his career 
right? So if something is like a limiting factor, then we know we have to address it at some point. If something is good enough and there are more pressing needs, then I think you shift to that point. And I think when you look at mechanics, a lot of it depends on where does that fall in line. So when I look at mechanics, I look at what are my easy fixes, all right? So what are the things that I can tweak really quickly that might give them slightly better efficiency or better ease of movement or perhaps even decreased injury risk? What are those key things that don't require a large amount of time, but that I can knock off right away? So they might be as simple as something as like, uh, reducing upper body twist and uh, becoming more efficient in your arms because it's always easier to change that than some lower, lower, lower body thing. So that might be something. The other thing I look at in mechanics in terms of deciding to change is, is this a major issue that is limiting their training or limiting their ability to get better? So if we have someone who has re- re- repetitively had um, a couple metatarsal stress reactions or fractures or had um, has um, continued Achilles loading issues or Achilles tendon, like things that have a direct uh, mechanical tie to it that has been happening over and over, then it's worth making the switch and diving in deeper and uh, doing a full-blown kind of revamp of of some central things so i I think it comes to the risk reward in that sense in terms of actually working on mechanics what we tend tend to do is well if i'm actually emphasizing it then we do it during strides right so we start with the movement itself and instead of doing addressing it in drills and stuff like that we address it in what it what it feels like because i think there's a um I think there's one thing to look at it mechanically, but I think it's another thing to look at the process of what is this athlete thinking about to run in the way that they do. So a lot of athletes, for example, never feel that their lower limb reaches out, you know, becomes really straight and slams into the ground. Like that's what they naturally do. So they don't feel that. Right. So we get to, we have to under, get them to understand what it feels like and then what it feels like to be a little bit different. So I think that's number one is we work on it when we actually run and strides after easy runs and stuff like that where we emphasize it. And the other point, I think if we need to go further, then we break it down from there. The other thing I'd like to emphasize too on what, when I work on things is, um, we emphasize what I'd call falling apart mechanics. So. Every athlete, when they hit big-time fatigue, they have some compensatory uh, mechanism that they use. Some people will try and get really long. Some people will go crazy with their arms. Some people will flail. And what we're trying to do mechanically is find out where that that compensation occurs and then try and ingrain a a mechanical strategy that allows them to maintain uh, form, but more importantly, maintain either stride length, stride rate, or force application all the way to the finish because like it's ingraining what you do at that point of falling apart that often makes a difference of whether you hold on for the last 50 meters of the 800 or whether you just fall apart and can't do anything. Yeah. I think this is an important differentiation to note, you know, distance running, middle distance running versus sprinting, you know, in sprinting there's this, um, fear or the stigma about 
doing anything that's not at optimal velocities, optimal postures, optimal mechanics, because you're then ingraining bad habits. So everything needs to be done only when you're fresh or only when you feel great. And, you know, that's, that's true. I mean, a sprinter never really gets into any kind of, you know, aerobic um, compromise situations because, you know, the closest they get is the 400 and that's only for a handful of seconds after you've passed that 45 second window where, you know, the ATP evaporates and everything's gone and you get, you know, you switch from aerobic anaerobic to aerobic and that's all good and fine. But they, you know, think about the world, the time world that they live in um, versus distance runners. I mean, that, that's the name of our game, man, is we got to run as fast as we can when they're really, really exhausted, <laughs> you know, and you, you hope you get to a place in an aerobic state where you can run a, a 10K at your competitive speed and then be, you know, aerobic the whole way through until that last lap. And then you can just sprint, you know, and transition from an aerobic to anaerobic state. But that's not the case ever. I mean, you're redlining. That's the nature of distance racing. So, you know, the falling apart mechanics I remind my athletes of the same. It's like all you're trying to do is just create separation when you feel good and then decelerate as least amount as possible comparative to everyone else given your separation. Because you get one bold move in any, you know, um, sprinting component of any distance race. And you want to do it earlier rather than later because that's when you're fresher. You know, and all people are, you know, doing or not doing is decelerating at certain rates and speeds. So, I like to, you know, work on what I call bastardized acceleration development, you know, ripped it from sprint coaches, but it's longer acceleration reps where we'll maybe 60, 80, 100, you know, and up by 20 meters or so up to 200 or 220. And we'll do, you know, one or two sets of that. And they're running really fast the whole time, you know, whether it's 1.3 to one point, you know, two meters per or um, seconds per 10 meters. And, you know, we try to say, okay, you are on this speed and da, 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 da. And as you go longer, as you go up the ladder, what happens is they start to hit a wall. You know, the really fit ones start to hit a wall once you crest 150 meters or 20 seconds of fast sprinting. You know, the people who are not as fit start to hit that wall after 15 seconds. But then it's like, hey, hold on and keep your mechanics as best as possible. I want you to look as fluid and as relaxed as you can, even though you're rapidly decelerating. Because working on that in a specific session, an acceleration development session, then gives the athlete the feeling of what it's going to honestly feel like in an 800 or a 1500 or even that 5K runner in, at the end of a really fast 5K. Because I think that's the thing that catches a lot of people off guard is they go from the steady grind of being in this like moderate acidosis, you know, lactate state to then all of a sudden just really quickly the acidosis accelerates and they're like, Oh my God, my arms, Oh, I can't feel it. And it's just, they, they, they completely fall apart. I mean, I've seen Lopez Lamont fall apart in a 5k. I mean, at Peyton Jordan a couple of years ago, he was cranking at 13 flat speed. And then he ran his last like 200 at 35 seconds. I mean, for Lopez Lamont, who's really good, you know, but you could tell that they hadn't done a whole lot of like acidosis type work you know, leaning into that 5k and just hit him hard because they, everyone started sprinting all out and he was just right on that like threshold border. So, you know, I think acceleration development type workouts are key, you know, for, you know, you want to introduce that early and often in your training plan. And as you get closer to championship season, still have it in there, but not have it be as aggressive. Maybe it's shorter, like 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, no longer, 
and where you're running really, really fast because the best way to get faster at running is by running very, very fast. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing replaces force contact into the ground. Nothing replaces any of that, you know, by any means, you know, um, in terms of weight room or any fancy drills or any, you know, prescriptions there, you're going to get your biggest bang for your buck by doing that running very, very fast. I think we over, we do overlook that in distance running and training is the value of short, fast, all out sprints. And I like to do 80 meters, which is about 10 seconds for most people, because you can, as a distance runner, you can hold those mechanics. You can work on that. You can have it be fluid and you can get that feedback too. You know, when Steve talks about casting out that leg coming straight out, I call it kicking the soccer ball. So you don't want that leg when you're sprinting, you know, kind of that downward slant when you're about to hit the ground, kick out like you can kick a soccer ball. You want that thing to come kind of straight down with the shin angles, you know, nice and clean, as close to 90 as you can with the ground. So all you got to do is just take your phone, videotape your athletes running really fast, come back after that rep is part of their rest. Like show them, Hey, here's what you're doing. Here's how far your legs casting out. Don't kick the soccer ball. Just mm-hmm. push the ground, slam down into the ground, push behind you. It's going to feel like you're pushing behind you, you know, you're going to, but you're actually pushed straight down because of it. So, you know, once you show them that, that gets them to click it, that visual, you know, synthesis of reviewing them running on the video I found has immensely helped their application to transfer that because they can then feel it out a little bit versus any kind of drills possible. Like, you know, the wickets that are really popular for sprinters. Like, yeah, my middle distance runners do it. We don't call it wickets. We just call them, you know, we just call them stride drills. You know, we just call them, okay, boom, 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 boom. And then they get out and continue it. But it only works if the athlete can utilize it and transfer it to the rest of their running. And the number one way to do it is you don't have to set up these fancy apparatuses. Just film them and show them. Yeah, well, that's the beautiful thing of everyone having iPhones and smartphones, right? You can you can get high speed video quality that's great, and people can see it right away. I mean, I remember that back in the day when I was starting high school coaching, like having an old school video camera out there and like reviewing stuff with them because I think the visual cue is so great. Because I think one of the things that people forget is that everyone runs, everyone however they run, that is their normal. That feels, they don't think about it. They don't have to think about it. They just run that way. So if you ask them, if you tell them, hey, you're doing that, most of the time, or hey, you're kicking out, a lot of times they'll be like, no, I'm not. Like, I don't feel it. Of course you don't feel it because, like, that's your normal. But if you should give them that visual cue, then it conceptualizes it and it they're like, oh, I actually am. The other thing I like to do with, like, that kicking out motion is, like, Sometimes having the athletes take off their spikes or shoes or whatever and doing it barefoot on the hard track because now you're used to landing in a shoe. Now you might slam your foot into the ground and you can actually get that, that, that feeling sensation where it's like, Oh, now I understand. Like I feel that like anything you can get to get an athlete to, to conceptualize and realize what they're doing is a good thing. That's your job is step one, getting them to conceptualize and realize step, (laughs) step two, I think is what you talked about is like the actual changing. And you made a good point there with when you talked, you made you mentioned the cue of it's going to feel like you're almost like pushing behind you when they're actually just pushing down. 
The other thing I like to tell coaches is when you're looking at working on mechanics, sometimes you have to overemphasize the cue because it feels so strange, right? So one of the things I, I used to like to do with athletes who had arm, arm, like if they, they, uh, swung their arms too far across the center, I'd be like, all right, just correct it, like correct it back to the middle. And then you'd go film them and watch them and they'd like correct, they think they correct it and their arm moved like a couple centimeters, right? And they, they'd be like, Oh my gosh, that felt so different. And then you show them on the video and you'd be like, yeah, it was like a tiny difference, but it feels so different because you're like, getting away from like what you're used to. So I think like the other point I make is it's going to feel weird to change some things and that's okay. It's supposed to feel weird and you almost have to overcorrect it so that you get them outside of their norm before you like fine tune it into, into their normal stuff. And then lastly, I think on that topic of speed development, I mean, you know this too, but we, we do 60, 80s, even occasionally 100s too. And I think it's something that should be in the program year round. I mean, I remember when I was training under Scott Rasco with Alan Webb and Mo- Moses Joseph and a couple others, like every every Monday it was ACC day. We'd go run our, do our little run, go to the track and do 50, 60 meter ACCs, so accelerations, and that's that was it. Like every day, practically year round, right? And I think that's how it serves a huge benefit. One of the other things that we've done a little bit is taken that same concept of acceleration development, only every once in a while, switched it to after a moderately hard workout. And I know sprint coaches are always like, "Oh, why are you doing acceleration after a hard workout when they're a little fatigued?" And my answer is that, well, we're not working on pure acceleration there. Now we're working on you're fatigued and we're trying to pattern the mechanics and what you're going to do when you're fatigued. So especially for middle distance athletes, it's not unusual that I'll have them do like 80 meter builds or even like 120s gradual acceleration at the end of their workout after they've had a little bit of rest. So that they get that they start getting that pattern of, okay, I'm going to eventually feel like I'm going to tie up, but I have to figure my way around it and figure out how to, how to best maintain mechanics and hopefully speed while I'm tired and feeling like I should tie up. Yeah. No, I mean, I do exactly the same thing. Actually, uh, one of my middle distance guys just basically did that type of session, um, last couple of days ago. I mean, he's three times 400. Cut down 56, 54, 52, five minutes rest. And then it was three times 150 at 18, 18, 17 with three to four minutes rest. I mean, so he's running really fast 150s after, you know, acido- high acidosis 400s. He's not fully recovered, but it's like, hey, you got to run very, very fast under fatigue because that's the demand of your 800 meter race, you know, and that's the reality of it. So, you know, the, the argument is, yeah, the neuroprogramming is not as smooth because you're fatigued, but, but that's, but that's where the race is won is in the fatigue state. Right. And I think sometimes it brings you back to like, you see so many coaches and athletes get excited about, oh my God, I had the best 600 meter time trial if I'm the 800 meter Oh my gosh, he's right around fast. The 600 meter time trial was amazing, but or her 600 meter time trial was phenomenal, but that's 90 seconds to, you know, if you're an elite, you know, 75 seconds, like that's, 
that's before it really gets real. And so you're doing this time trial before it really gets real. And then you think you're going to pop off this big one, but yet you're not ripe and not ready for what the race really is, which is being in a state of very slow deceleration in the last final 200 of an 800. Because really, as we know, the 800 is just four 200s with a very slow deceleration pattern between all four of those 200s, you know, back to back to back to back. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're, you know, Steve and I are independently thinking the same thing here, but there's value to that. Right. And I, I agree a hundred percent like Bush next cider. You know, one thing I do agree with him a hundred percent on is, you know, when she run fast day one, he always says year round, year round, you're running fast. You're sprinting year round, because if you're not, then what ends up happening is, you get these athletes hurt when you do your quote unquote speed workout. And I would, unfortunately was a victim of that in college as well. And that's why coach distance goes, Oh, we don't do speed because it gets everyone hurt. But think about how you apply it. If you're running 50, 60 buildups or sprints, you know, once a week year round and you're tuning that your body and you're tuning that athlete to running very, very fast. Then when you do your 10 times two hundreds all out, you know, in the your quote unquote peak phase or at the end of the year and end of outdoor track, they're not going to be pulling Achilles or, or um, straining Achilles or pulling, you know, calf muscles. You know, they're not going to be pulling hamstrings. And that's what ends up happening is like, we're like, oh, well, what do you do at the end of the year? Well, we should have them run really fast because we're, we're peaking and we're getting ready for the big championship. But like, have you done, have, have you ever done, you know, four times 200 at 26, 27? You know, no, but now you're doing eight to 10 at that speed because, oh, well, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to run real fast at the end, high, high volume or high intensity, low volume and get them ready. But if you haven't, you know, set that, laid that foundation by running fast for small doses year round or building up to it, of course you're going to get hurt. (laughs) Well, of course. And that's where I think common sense comes into play, right? It's like next logical step. Like, it's such a common sense thing to say that, like, hey, before you run, like, something substantial fast, you have to run fast, right? But it's one of those things that kind of gets lost in the translation because it's, like, you know, it's, like, oh, like, we need to do all this fast stuff at the end, so we're going to wait. But, like, I don't want to do it early because you you get gun-shy because you're, like, well, I don't want them to, to, uh, to get hurt. And I think that's a bad pattern and habit to get into. Yeah, I mean, you know, ways to incorporate it is by, you know, for us, for me, for athletes I train is we always have a pre-workout activation, as we call it. So we do our, you know, easy warm-up drills, et cetera, um, some strides. But then they have a really specific activation pattern that's supposed to, you know, activate different um, physiological systems depending on the time of year. And now for the middle-distance distance runners – uh, or shorter distance runners, so 5K people and down, essentially, you know, their activation is a tempo 800, a couple, you know, 200s at 5K pace, and then a couple strides. Then it's two times 80 fast, you know, just 10 seconds, which is fast, full recovery walk back, and then two times 150 cutting down. So, you know, for the guys, this might be 18, 19. For some of the ladies, it might be 21, 20, or 20 you know, 19 and with full recovery. So it's fast stuff that we're doing before we even touch any workout. doesn't matter what that workout is. And then they get full recovery, like eight minutes where we go over what the session is and da, 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 da. But I'm sneaking in, 
some speed work very, very, you know, gradually, but consistently, you know, twice a week, that might be independent of a all out speed work session so that when we do have them do six times 150 very, very fast or, you know, four times 400 or five times 400 very, very fast with lots of recovery, their body is able to handle that because we've already, you know, indoctrinated within them that consistency for several weeks of running those reps, fast reps before we even do any work. And I think, you know, there's this tendency to isolate as Steve and I always talk about, we're more holistic in our approach. You know, you want to get from isolating these different elements where speed has to be this one day independent of anything else. You know, tempo work has to be this one day independent of anything else. You know, 5K, 3K reps have to be independent because the body does not work independently. I think, you know, coming back to that podcast with Vernon and Gary, you know, even they were talking about somewhere in there where it's like you have to train the whole organism and the, the whole system and the variety that it is exposed to in the course of training or in the course of competition versus taking this more old school isolated approach. Because again, you know, Steve and I really trump this complete training methodology, but you know, as we know, and as everyone knows, there's still a very, uh, you know, um, high propensity and desire to have these kind of linear block training programs or linear, um, patterns of training where it's like two plus two equals four, <laughs> but we don't always get that because that's not the world we live in. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to this. The question you need to ask yourself is, are you choosing this because it's easier to wrap your head around it or are you choosing it because it's best for your athlete? And I think sometimes we fall into this very isolation based uh, linear approach because it's easier to wrap our head around it. It's easier to walk into a workout and be like, oh, this is like uh, anaerobic capacity lactic development day. So I'm doing A, B and C, right? It's harder to wrap your head around like, all right, I need to create a session where we're going to work on this. But then we're going to have to do a little bit of this other thing, which is different and, you know, end with maybe, you know, this cool down exercise to get them back to normal. It's a it's a lot harder to be creative and take your mind out of checking off these boxes of like oh, there's some VO2 max work. There's some tempo work. There's some anaerobic work like there's some specific work like it's all checked off neat and orderly. I think I think that that approach is um is tantalizing for people because it makes sense and they can wrap their head around it. But I think it fails the athlete because as you like to say, as we like to point out is when you go, when you go into a race, like everything mixes, <laughs> there's no, it's not like you move from a system to B system to C system. It's everything's intermixed and everything, everything interplays. Right. And I think sometimes we forget that in training because we, we develop it all isolation based and then almost like pray that it all comes together. Well, it's the illusion of a scientific yeah. approach, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people think a scientific approach is very systematic, very, you know, highly prescriptive. You know, we have the year plan, you know, <laughs> mapped out to a T, but the scientific approach and, you know, Steve as the scientific guru here on, you know, with the book titled the science ring can tell you, I think would agree is the scientific approach is trial and error, just trial and error. And just, you know, I always tell people what I do with my athletes 
is we we don't do things that don't work. That's yeah. all it is. It's not that we do things that work. It's just we stay away from the things that don't work. Well, and knowing what works and doesn't work for each athlete, that that's that's key. Yeah, and I, I think I think people have a misconception of science. Like I think if you look at what science is, it's it's exactly that. It's the goal of science is to test out and decide what works and what doesn't. We're trying to pr- we're trying to see if if what our hypothesis is correct, if it works or not. And if it doesn't, then we move on to the next one. And we amass this great wealth of knowledge by doing that. And if you go back to some of the great scientists of maybe the, you know, 18th and 19th century, like if you look at someone like Charles Darwin, for example, it was observation, right? It was observation, putting the pieces together and seeing if his theory fit. And I think that's what it is as, as a coach too. It's not, it's not, Hey, I'm going to create this very systematic training plan. It's, I have this idea that, that this works based on maybe history of training. We're going to test it out and I'm going to observe and I'm going to see if it gives me the reaction that I want it to. Right. So I think the, the perfect example of this is actually on Twitter last night. Nick, uh, Nick Willis, the, the great New Zealand miler, um, tweeted at me and said, Hey, is there any science behind doing a 18 to 21 mile long run for a middle distance athlete versus normally? you know, doing 13 or 14. And we went back and forth on Twitter and he was like, I'm not a scientist, but through the, throughout years of experimentation, I found that 18 to 21 miles for me, like leaves me feeling stronger and really helps within part of my race. And I, you know, myself and Trent Stellingworth gave him an explanation for why that is, but that's, that's a, you know, he said he's not a scientist, but that's beautiful science right there. Yeah, exactly. He is a scientist. <laughs> right? I mean, it's amazing. Like he, he was aware enough to try different, well, he tried different things, right? And he was aware enough to notice his reaction to trying different things. And he ended up with a 18 to 21 mile long run, which maybe, you know, out of, out of milers is something you only see from like the, the Peter Snells of the world who did pure Lydiard stuff. I mean, it's not, not, uh, not a, exceedingly traditional. So, but he ended up with something like that that worked. And I think that is the essence of a scientific approach is taking that approach and finding what works and what doesn't versus having some pretty little, you know, neat little graphed out, uh, systematic training plan that looks beautiful on on paper but doesn't work in the real world right i mean and that's with a lot of the athletes i work with who come to me you know i'm talking post-collegiate professional athletes from you know uh, another coach or another coaching uh stable you know i just ask them what they do before and what they felt didn't work and they'd be like well we did this and it didn't work i go okay well we won't do that (laughs) because I'm not going to ask, even though it might be a perfectly good workout or training plan that works for some people, it didn't work for that athlete. And that's, once you understand what doesn't work, it really opens up what does work. Because I think we're erroneously looking for the magic bullet or the secret workouts that guaranteed to work. Yeah. You know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't exist. Yeah, Yeah. it doesn't exist. (laughs) So it doesn't. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't work at all. I mean, I think, I think if you go to any college program in the country, just ask the college coach because every college, if you coach enough athletes, 
you get some who improve off the generic, like the maybe not the generic, but the norm one. And you get some who go backwards and you're left there sitting like, well, it works for everyone else. So it doesn't work for him. So I have to figure it out. Right. Right. And I mean, too, it's like with any athlete, it's yep. like, especially young, young athletes below the age 25, half of it is just they're growing and they're just, their bodies are just getting stronger and better. Like yep. as long as you keep them healthy they're going to run faster. <laughs> and, and I think sometimes, you know, it comes back to our stance on the overimportance of the coach and like, Oh man, this, this subtle manipulation, this subtle tweak. Oh, I'm a genius. I'm a mastermind. We're going to, they're going to be firing all cylinders and ready to go. And, you know, going back earlier, the amount of hours in a month that you spend on high quality training is very, very minimal. It's not really that big versus convincing the kids to get eight to nine hours of sleep versus four to six is probably a lot more impactful than if you did, you know, six times 200s at 27, 28 versus if you did four times 200 at 25, you know, because um, ultimately you're arguing about one, you're, you're going back and forth between one minute of stimulus versus several hours of, of a positive stimulus. So you know, I, I, it depends on who you ask too. Like with some athletes that I work with, you know, it's really sophisticated what we're doing. We got okay, you got acceleration development here. We're gonna have kind of this roll-on lactate dynamic session here. You know, we're gonna have this reactive strength, you know, program here in the weight room for you this week. We're gonna do this. We're gonna do that, and it looks like whoa, really sophisticated. Like there's a lot going on. And some people, it's just throw it all out the window. And let's just have you, you know, be happy and not be bored with training. You know, a good example. I say like Tara Welling, you know, the week she recently paced Lexi Pappas to a 5K and then just kind of decided haphazardly in the middle of it to just kind of stick in it and finish it just for fun. You know, she was almost coming over to me after she, her pacing duties were done after two miles and said, what should I do? Like as a triple jumper walking out to like lane four or five. And I'm like, well, if you're feeling good, just finish at whatever pace feels good. Why not? Better than doing a workout. And she's like, okay. <laughs> and then she just kind of, you know, continued to run and, you know, she ran like 1549 just off of pacing, you know, a friend and then just hanging in and running like a five, you know, 15 last mile at tempo effort, right? We didn't do, we didn't have any workouts at all for a week leading up to it because she just kind of felt shitty. She just kind of felt like, ah, I don't feel engaged. I don't feel good. I just kind of feel like, womp, womp. And I said, T, that's fine, man. You just, you know, was, this came two weeks after a 10K that she ran 32 flat. And I was like, T, we don't need a workout. It's like, you're fit. You're fit and it won't disappear, yeah. but we need to not get you hurt. Exactly. I mean, I think that's a brilliant point, and I think you don't hear those points enough because uh, coaches and athletes don't see the intricacies. I mean, I'll give you another example. So one of my athletes, Zach Hine, who was 10th at the Boston Marathon um, last weekend, um, his prep race leading up to it, after dropping out of the trials because of the heat, his prep race, the Dallas half marathon, he ran 70 minutes for a half marathon, right? That's horrible for him. Um, but it was just one of those things where you just didn't feel good going into it. And we were just like, all right, like, we know you're fit. Like you're healthy for the first time in a while. It just was like an off, off day. Like you were tired. So let's just take it easy for a little bit. And then, and we'll just kind of cruise along and cruise into the marathon. And sure enough, in the marathon, you know, on a pretty hot day with some wind at the end, he comes through half marathon in 68 minutes and said, like, yeah, that that felt easy and goes on to finish pretty strong. So I, I think there's some there's a notion to like, you know, 
seeing what works and what doesn't and listening to the athlete, right? It doesn't have to be all this grand scientific plan of, of, um, you know, everything going according to plan and, and being planned out and always making incredible progressions. It's like paying attention, observing and listening to an athlete. Yeah. And it's knowing too, as telling another, an athlete or a coach this weekend, the longer I coach, the less I'm certain the impact of workouts. <laughs> because when you think about a weekly workout volume or impact is about 20%, maybe maybe 25% of all the running you're doing is actually time spent running workouts and or you know quality in workouts, you know, whether it's strides, reps, what have you. The other 80% is just everything else you're doing. Well, yep. you know, there's value to that. And that's really the heart of your training is that other 80%. And most of it's restorative in purpose, you know, or recovery oriented in purpose or, you know, trying to get you prepared or ready for that hard session or that race or whatever, however you want to, you know, classify it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you, you could say it's the 80-20 rule where 20% mm-hmm. of the work has 80% of the impact, but I don't know anymore. I mean, I've seen <laughs> people crush amazing workouts like, oh my gosh, like this person yeah. is just on fire at, I mean, at every level, college, high school, pro, and then they just completely crap out on the race day and are, you know, complete non-factors. And I've seen the exact inverse, like no workouts or shitty workouts. And just like, meh, all right, well, we, we know your body works really good and you're really fit. So let's go get it, you know, <laughs> because the good ones are the ones who get an extra 10 to 15% of themselves out on race day and ultimately comes back to what Gary and Vern talked about is training is only meant to enhance competitive performance. That is it. Otherwise, I would just tell people, hey, guys, sit on the couch all week and show up on race day and let's go. Because, you know, the value of that was, um, you know, one of the main quotes of that podcast was Gary had said he squatted a lot of really good athletes into mediocre athletes because in sprinting there's this emphasis on heavy back squats for a long time and just really loaded them up in the gym and thought oh man this heavy loads are is what's going to make them better because they're going to adapt to that heavy load stimulus and then come out of it amazing and it's like i'm now more and more on, on par with Vern and gary and saying how much is the bare minimum that we need to do to get the stimulus in that in the time of year that we need to get the stimulus? You know, and I, we have like hard, heavy phases of training and we have medium phases of training and then we have restorative phases of training and we have feel amazing phases mm-hmm. of training. And, you know, now with the professionals, we're coming out of a heavy medium phase for a lot of them because it's yeah. getting to be May and it's time to start doing more medium easy work and they're asking me coach when do i feel amazing when do i feel amazing (laughs) pretty soon pretty soon it's just about feeling amazing every single day because you know good coaches know that how an athlete feels can really transfer to how well they compete And in college the feel amazing periods right now it's april and may so they can run these invitations get fast marks and for professionals it's may june and early july now with the trials because you want to feel on fire so it's tough because you have to know when your season really is, and for a lot of pros or new newly minted pros or post collegiates, they're used to feeling amazing in April and May, and now they're not feeling amazing in April. And it's like, hey, whoa, wait a couple more weeks. <laughs> like, because if you feel amazing now, you're not going to feel amazing when it counts at championship time of year because yeah. championships later that you have to participate in. So, you know, it, it, just keeping it simple and understanding, you know, what you're striving towards. It's it's easy. I always tell people like, there's all this stuff you can do in training, but the goal has to be the mountain and you're trying to get to the summit of this mountain, whatever 
your goal race or goal time of years. And the best way to figure out what to do or what not to do is it does it help you get closer to the summit of that mountain? If it doesn't, if it brings you away from it or puts you on a sidetrack tangent, don't do it. Don't even <laughs> think about doing it. Continue on the path up to the mountain. How do you know you're getting to the summit of the mountain? Because it gets closer and you get further up. And if that's happening, then you're on the right path. Don't worry about any supposed shortcuts or better way to do it. You know, as long as you're getting closer and closer to that summit of that mountain, you're on the right path, but don't deviate from that. Exactly. I think that's a perfect place to end and a great way to sum things up. I mean, I always tell athletes, if you're getting better, then you're getting better and you don't need to, don't need to look elsewhere. It's a, it's a tempting thing to do. But as you said, if you're on that path to the summit and it's getting closer, then you just stay on that path. You don't have to make changes until, until, until you see yourself going, going, uh, tumbling down the mountain or the wrong, the wrong direction, <laughs> right? True. True. So, uh, yeah, hope you guys enjoyed it again. Appreciate all the, the comments we're getting and all the feedback. Um, hit us up on Twitter if you have any requests. Um, and thanks as always, guys. Yeah, appreciate it. Keep having fun. That's what it's about.